Damn. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming in today. Mimi Young was on the podcast with me. Uh, Mimi is a super relatable and down-to-earth person. When you say the word shaman, you might think um, raggedy clothes, speaking in tongues, uh, snake oil, but Mimi's a super practical, relatable mother, um, genuine human. Some of the more that the more that I get to know them, the more that I kind of love just bringing back layers and getting to know more and more and more because she's so articulate. So Mimi's been featured in uh, Vogue, in the Huffington Post, in um, uh, the, uh, Almost Thirty Podcast, which is a super uh, popular podcast, and uh, as, as well as many other podcasts, Fashion Mag, you name it. Um, so she's someone that knows a ton about shamanism and spiritual energy and mystic shit if you will um which is a bit of a stretch for some but makes it you know very tangible and then she's also uh, a neurofeedback practitioner at open mind so she operates at this spot where um tactical meets practical um concrete meets abstract uh she's someone that started off in graphic design um worked her way through into the education system in primary school um and into entrepreneurship where she's been for the last couple years now uh really enjoyed this conversation i think there's a ton of tangible information uh and it was a very genuine lighthearted. i was very open uh and we we really got into it and and learned a lot and she made things digestible uh, for someone who doesn't know a ton about the areas that she uh, works in so enjoy and it's a really beautiful thing how you think thematically across all these things you use common themes um to kind of apply to to open minds and to ceremony and ultimately to your life so thank you for uh exploring into that and, and sharing with us today thank you so much joss for having me it's my pleasure so Tell us, let's start with, let's start with open minds. Um, let's start with the science. Let's start with um, neurofeedback. And as someone myself and listeners are super into uh, human optimization, things of that nature, um, bettering yourself um, from an emotional standpoint, a physical standpoint, a physiological standpoint, a spiritual standpoint, what is open minds? Um, can you give us the, the background there and what that's all about? Absolutely. So open minds performance is my second business that I'd set up. And the origins was actually to help my son. So my son um, has ADHD, and uh, it's actually ADHD PI. PI denotes predominantly inactive. So for him, it doesn't come up so much as um, hyperactivity um, or uh, having a difficult time concentrating. For him, it really shows up through uh, working memory. Mm. Um, as well as being able to self-manage, um, self-manage from an sort of an operation sort of way. Um, I'm not sure it, I understand. More like executive functioning, right? Okay. So being able to plan your time, being able to regulate your energy um, in a time context, um, and being able to look at things from a bigger picture. So uh, those were the areas that we really found that uh, we were um, encountering from feedback from you know, school and even just observing uh, his strengths and the areas that were challenging to him. Um, that's really where it started. So I looked into uh, various options, and um, for us, uh, it, it just really, you know, all signs were pointing to finding ways to build resilience in his actual brain. Mm. Um, not necessarily through medication, um, not that there's anything wrong with medication, but we knew that that's, that's actually not the area where he really needed the support. 
So I looked into neurofeedback, and for me, um, you know, when I did the math and I looked at uh, the proximity of, you know, the nearest clinic that offered uh, from in, you know, bare bones, what do they actually offer in terms of, uh, you know, their their knowledge set, um, their support, their philosophy, like. So we were looking at sort of what was available in our geographical area, and then it, I just realized that I could have done this. Like, I could do this. So I, I can put myself through the training. I can invest in the equipment. And because I know my son, I know then how to work with the tool so that it could help him. Mm-hmm. So that's basically how it started. Um, so he was my first client. Um, I was my second. And my partner <laughs> was my third. Nice. I like it. And, um, and we, you know, we just started there. And it really never was meant to be a business from the from day one. Um, it only became a business because we noticed changes um, in our lives. People noticed changes in our lives, and people start asking about it. Mm. And so, what is exactly, you know, open minds? I know I'm kind of answering the question in a roundabout no, way. I love it. Go, yeah, for it sure. It is to help people reach their potential by facilitating the shifts in the brain that are inherently possible to access without medication, without other types of interventions. Because even the neurofeedback um, uh, system that I use, which is a specific type of system called dynamic neurofeedback, and I can talk about the differences in a moment, but dynamic neurofeedback is about building resilience and plasticity in the brain um, not by inputting information, but by taking the existing information from your own brain and then mirroring it back to the brain so that the brain can sense it, perceive it, and be like, oh, well, I can change this on my own. And so it's through overtime with practice that the resilience and that, of course, the, harmonial, the harmonious integration of the brain uh, happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you looked at me when you when you said, "Well, how does that work?" Basically, that's mm-hmm. the look that I'm getting from you. So, if you, I love it. I don't even. Yeah. Have to ask <laughs> she, just, she just takes it right off the top. She's like, "Oh no, I got you, Joss." Okay, yeah. So, if you wake up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror and you've got bed head, the first thing you're going to do is fix your hair, and <laughs> that's essentially nothing was inputted into you. It was just mirror information was mirrored to you and you thought oh okay well I have this information now what do I want to do with it well for me I've got a meeting to go to that might take me a little more seriously if my hair you know was polished a bit so I'm going to just quickly tweak that and then um and then you can sort of go on with your day and that's how this particular neurofeedback system approaches it so you have the sensors that's placed on your scalp you're listening to an audio track and it's just reading the information from your brain in terms of how it's operating it's reading your brain waves it's reading the proportion of the various brain waves with each other and when it senses dysregulation it will provide a very brief pause in the audio and that's the signal for you Hmm. and oftentimes the audio like that brief, brief, I'll call it a blip, that pause, is so brief that your conscious mind is not even aware of it. Mm-hmm. It's really subtle. And sometimes it'll be maybe like half a second long. 
possibly a second. A second of a pause is considered a really long interruption, um, according to uh, the system's sort of norm. And when you hear that pause, over time, your brain learns, oh, I am causing these pauses myself. Mm -hmm. What can I do to shift out of these uh, behaviors that are creating these pauses in the first place? Mm -hmm. So with that, your brain then starts carving new pathways. And um, for those of you who, you know, who are listening, who are not totally aware of how you know neurons or our brain cells work but it's very much about carving paths and it's very much like a network that we can liken to let's say um you know just uh you know the infrastructure system of transportation in any given city sure um main roads are very widely accessed by multiple cars and other vehicles we can use those as symbols of information mm -hmm. And, you know, the smaller streets are a little less accessed and the little, you know, back alleys are probably least accessed. And when you can give your brain a chance to access those less um, traveled roads, so to speak, it gives your brain the capacity to build more uh, neurons in those back alleys. Mm -hmm. And it builds more strength and it builds more capacity for your brain to learn, for your brain to reconsider patterns um, in, a, in a healthy context, in a way of where we can be more self-aware and we can say, oh, well, I've normally been really reactive in this kind of situation. How can I be more mindful? Mm -hmm. How can I not be as triggered and how can I work in a way that's much more effective and productive? Mm -hmm. And so... What I found so amazing about neurofeedback, um, not only in my son's life, um, but you know, I can just speak for myself in my own personal life, that I do tend to pause much more before reacting. And typically now, I choose response versus reaction. Mm -hmm. um, and that, of course, has improved communications and relationships on all fronts. Um, I've also noticed that I am less confronted with that little voice in my mind that says, you can't do this. Mm -hmm. And it's more like, okay, well, what can I do? Mm -hmm. um, and that's just through me working with this amazing tool. Um, and, you know, typically you sort of start on a program of about 10 sessions. It's usually broken down to either, it depends on the individual and what their goals are, but um, about one session a week, one session every 10 days. And so after even just two months of this, there's some pretty tangible and noticeable shifts. Um, it may not be noticeable shifts in the sense that it's, like it's not designed to quote unquote cure ADHD, let's of say. Of course. Um, but it can equip an individual into really feeling assured that they, they can handle life and they can not only handle life, but they can really thrive in, in life. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, you know, in the context of my son to be able to see him uh, happy to learn, confident in learning, and being much more nimble in these like uncertain, out of his comfort zone situations. I think it's just been really, it's it's really reassuring as a parent, and it's very affirming for him. Hmm. And when I, I don't know who planted the seed in my mind, but I had a, I think maybe it was a podcast or a book or something of that nature where it said 
for instance, if you walk to work or, you know, I take the SkyTrain downtown, then I'll walk to work from there. And, you know, typically I'll take the same route. Mm -hmm. And now I make an active effort to go down weird back alleys, go an extra block around, go to the ocean and then come back or just find a weird way. Like even weaving throughout, you know, buildings differently. Um, the reason being that, you know, if you stimulate your environment in different ways, if you see things from different angles, you create new um Neuro, uh, neurological connections and neural pathways is there truth to that absolutely okay because that was just in my mind I, don't, I didn't have anything to back it up yeah absolutely and I say this because um, I think most of us we can agree that we are uh, as humans creatures that are always looking for homeostasis that's mm. how we're built mm. and homeostasis does not typically like change because change equals uh, a threat to the environment, or very possibly a threat. Um, and this is built into our evolution, right? So I'm going to talk a little bit about what's what are called beta brainwaves. Please do. So beta brainwaves has served us immensely in the evolution of human beings. So beta brainwaves are the brainwaves that are associated with fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also associated with being able to think of the most effective, most efficient solution for this given time to get out of, you know, this dangerous situation. So let's say way back in the day, um, a tiger would perhaps be uh, something of threat to humans. And I've shared this before, um, not on a podcast, but um, at a talk. um, Historically, if you were to sort of well, we'll use the metaphor of two sisters as a way to describe two different types of brains. So sister A is happy-go-lucky. She uh, is super chill. She sees, you know, beauty in everything. And, you know, the glass is always half full in her eyes. And then there's sister B who's skeptical, paranoid, definitely sees the cup half empty. And she typically goes around, you know, navigating around the world, thinking that something bad, something threatening might happen to her. So let's say sister A and B are going for a walk in the grasses. And, you know, there's this predatory animal in the background, let's say a tiger. And sister A is so busy admiring the beautiful clouds that she doesn't notice and sister B, a split second out of that fear-based mind, notices a slight shift in the grasses that was not uh, customary to what she was used to. So because she has that split second advantage, she outruns sister A. And you know, sister A uh, loses that, that race and um, she becomes the tiger's dinner. So over time, what we know is what survives and what is in us as you know, humans that have sort of left that type of lifestyle and are in modern society, is that the beta brainwaves, that survival-based brainwave, that fear-based, paranoid-based, wanting safety all the time-based brainwaves are highly active in us. Um, but uh, tigers aren't there anymore. I mean, maybe tigers are now represented through deadlines, through an upset boss, through a screaming partner at home. Um, But for the most part, we respond to everything in life through fear. And most of us want order, want control, because those, 
And that familiarity is what represents safety. Mm-hmm. So going back to what you said, this is why people want to take the exact same route to work each mm-hmm. and every day in their commute because it represents comfort, familiarity, and safety. And it sort of keeps the beta waves at bay mm-hmm. um, rather than allowing um, us to be able to navigate life a little differently and actually calling on different brain waves to help offset the beta brain waves. Mm. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that there's we continually attract or, or move towards beta brain waves uh, because it's safe, familiar, comfortable. You know, we're about survival. We want to survive. What I know is safe. Um, Alpha waves are, could you go into maybe the different types of waves, what they mean and and how they affect us? Sure. Um, So I'll talk about alpha just because you've mentioned it. Um, So alpha waves are associated with being like deeply in the body and alert, but it's not fear. It's more about being in the flow. Flow states. And this is why athletes work really hard to achieve that. And let's say, you know, athletes spacing naturally on the court, being able to uh, flow. And this is coming out of that intellectual place, right? Coming into this, I sense you, you sense me. We are harmonious. That's really what alpha is. Um, There's uh, something called theta. Mm. So theta is a little slower than, okay, so like beta's faster than alpha, alpha's faster than theta. Um, Theta waves um, are a very shallow rest meditative state. And theta waves is also where a lot of memories and experiences are stored. And those who, let's say, practice meditation or hypnotherapy um, or even shamanic work, which we'll get to later, um, this is the area where... uh, of your, you know, the theta waves govern that. It governs the subconscious. It governs the emotions. It governs trauma. Mm. Um, it uh, relates a lot to early memories um, and a lot of belief system. And then there's something called delta brainwaves. Delta mm. is deep sleep, and this is where cellular regeneration takes place. Um, you're sleeping, um, and uh, it's a it's a very slower. It's much much slower than the other brainwaves. And then there's something I'm going to jump to the other end. So there's different types of beta. So there's, you know, low beta, mid beta, and high beta. And I don't want to say all beta is quote unquote bad. Mm. It's just that oftentimes when we're in that go, 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 what has to get done, um, that safety and that reward um, based mindset. But, you know, a lot of planning, um, a lot of, um, you know, intellectual like highbrow intellectual thinking that takes place there and we definitely need it Mm -hmm. Um, it's just that when we are operating exclusive of the other ones that's when it becomes a detriment Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's uh yeah there's there's gamma so gamma is more about uh, or more associated with compassion very big picture universal thinking thematic thinking um, and it's less wrapped up in my story and it's more interested in what's our story. Mm. So a lot of peace, a lot of resolution-based um, behaviors come out of the gamma. 
Wow. And so we all really do need all of these. And if I didn't have any beta, then I wouldn't have known to come meet you here to have this talk. So it's just that if that's all I do, that's all I think, if my mind is always just operating on, um, you know, that that to-do list, then yes, I'm going to have anxiety problems. Yes, I'm going to have a hard time sleeping at night because I'm not going to be able to shift out of beta. Mm and shift into alpha and then into theta, mm. which you have to get into theta to be able to sleep. Um, and so, and theta, of course, is also what governs dreams. Of course. So we have alpha waves, deep sleep, regenerative, um, regenerating cells, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or sorry, delta, deep yeah. sleep, excuse me, rather. Um, we have theta, which is more of a meditative sp- state. Um, meditative emotional. Meditative emotional. Um, and then we have alpha, which is could be described as a flow state, highly reactive. In the body, though, still. In the body, yeah. still. Um, beta is more of a fear-driven state, more of a planning-driven state, more of a anxiety-driven state. Um, and then we have gamma, which is compassionate, more of a sense of us, a sense of we, uh, more of a biosphere consciousness. Um, so we have all of these different ways uh, to think and waves that are operating within our brain and different modalities within our brain you spoke earlier about shifting from one way to another. This is one of, I mean, if you're a meditator, you, you realize that's one of the, the skills that it gives you is, you know, within a second or a few breaths, you're able to down-regulate or up-regulate your system. And I don't actually know what that means, but I felt it and experienced it, meaning like I've been in a beta state. Um, this is actually a good example. Just before this podcast, we came in, we were a little behind. Da-da-da-da, I'm in beta state. Um, and now all of a sudden I'm here and I'm, I'm very present and more in, a, in, a, in an alpha state. Mm-hmm. So how do you change and shift those gears within your mind? How does that work? Right. Um, this is now kind of delving into hard neuroscience um and i think uh from a you know like the key take-home pieces is it's through being nimble this is this Mm. is what um maybe you've heard of the, the word plasticity or neuroplasticity is being able to be adaptive and most of us we've been trained not only through like today's culture, but through generational um, evolution, mm. we've been trained to create a lot of compartments in how we think. Um, and we, you know, we live in an age where really the machine has taken over um, the creative. And mm. and when I say the machine, I, I mean this in sort of an Orwellian sort of context, right? <laughs> like like we are just cogs in this big, big landscape of functionality mm. um, without realizing that functionality is only one piece of um, highly optimal um, beings. Like there's that, of course, mm-hmm. but then there's also something that's much more undefinable, much more creative. And what I have found working in neurofeedback and even in my shamanic practice is being able to really go into those areas of discomfort, really find your edges um, and and touching those edges mm. and even stepping like even just one step beyond that edge. So, and, and I say this because, you know, I have neurofeedback clients and they'll be like, wow, this session, I had a lot of little pauses, little, you know, blips um, in the audio. I think my brain's like really out of it today. And I say, no, no, absolutely not. Like you're on your eighth session. We've been seeing huge progress 
it means that you're now venturing into those edges mm. in in more with more confidence than you did before and that's probably why you've had to go through this and then we'll take a look at something called tunnels which is this really fascinating diagram of their thought patterns represented like visually Ooh. after the session and it doesn't really mean anything there's no such thing as a good tunnel report or a bad tunnel report <laughs> it's just what is yeah for sure but i'll look at it and i'll be like wow like compare this one to the you know the past three and they look different they're represented graphically really different which mm. tells me that their brain was able to sort of venture into those edges a little more and i think it's important to, to know what those edges are and to, rather than sort of you know be really safe and be like okay i'm always going to make sure there's like a 15 percent buffer before i touch those edges it's it's nice to go to those places right. it's scary as hell uncomfortable yeah, of course. but once you get there you'll be like oh i didn't die like and I came back stronger and mm -hmm. the next time you can go there again and really push it even further and further that's so interesting that's a concept that is so um that is ever present across industries and people that we've had on this podcast like mm. whether it's um physiotherapy clinics um speaking about um stretching in the muscles and 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 and, and increasing your range of motion whether that's people like yourself talking about pushing the boundaries in your mind and through your brain waves and in your consciousness to expand it kind of and you just kind of go 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 go, and you you actually get it further and you have more flexibility uh, within that and you're more fluid within that to like business people coming in and saying well yeah it's important that from an organizational leadership standpoint i slowly push the boundaries in a way that aligns with people's core values mm -hmm. and ethics and it's just like oh my gosh that is that is just such a key and we can see it in, in working out like you want to get to you know 85 90 percent of your of your heart rate you want to go to those boundaries and push a little bit beyond um it just seems like that's a common theme everywhere i want to jump back mm -hmm. um to something that you said early on you said um reacting versus responding and this is something that you were able to change in your son um having that ability for him to take a moment is that is that what's the difference between responding and reacting to stimulus in your environment i think um the best way to describe it is when you're reacting you become victim to the script and when you are responding you get to write the script mm. and in the context of my son he's able to um, self-advocate. He's able to self-advocate amongst his peers. For instance, he can say, whoa, it's getting really noisy. I'm just gonna move myself to this quiet desk in the back of the classroom and just mm. get this done. Um, to self-advocating um, you know, with uh, an adult. So for instance, if there's a substitute teacher, he can say, hey, this is how I think might not be the way that you're used to, but this is just how I need to do things to get it done. But at the end, wow. I'll get it done for you. Wow. Um, and that's through him just being much more aware and being able to, rather than say, wow, I have a really crappy teacher, <laughs> or like, oh, everybody's so loud, which mm. to me, those are signs of being victim of the script wow. versus saying, nope, I can write my own script. Mm -hmm. Let me see what I can do. And what's great is people want script writers in their life because people want things easy. People want people want you to be happy. What they don't want to do is have to figure out what it is that's going to make you happy. So if you say, hey, I've got a cheat sheet here. Yeah. Can you just let me be able to do these two things? People are going to say, yes, absolutely. 
by all means. And then everyone's happy at the end. Wow. But it's hard to be a script writer. It is. Absolutely. It's, it's hard. You have a lot of self-confidence, self-belief, self-regulation to be a script writer. That's not easy. It isn't easy. That reminds me of, um, again, I think it was The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle. Mm -hmm. Um, I always, I always, I always remember the tidbits. I never remember who said them, so I apologize. <laughs> um, but I guess that's the important part. Um, uh, something there that, that was uh, spoken about through um, adaptation of, of mindfulness throughout your life is you start to realize your life is uh, life is a journey, life is a story, and you're, mm -hmm. um, you know, you realize that through your experiences, you're you're writing the story, you're um, you're continually. Um, making it as you get a little bit older uh, when you're younger you you think you're just a character in it this is right. my place in the world um whatever happens to me happens to me i don't really know i don't have too much control over it and then you start to realize yes you're both the reader of the story you're the character in the story and you're the person that's writing the story mm -hmm. all at the same time and that sounds similar to what you were were saying there yeah. um can i just add well, one yeah. more thing to what you said because it, it is hard um but when i'm sharing like just those stories alone um, that, that took practice and that took a lot of intention and it's not like one, you know, session with, uh, with a neurofeedback system is going to get you there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, it will certainly get you there if the person is committed mm -hmm. and, um, and they're willing to try. And mm -hmm. in the beginning, yeah, like it is going to be hard. It's going to be hard to say, Hey, I'm going to move myself to the back of the room. Yeah. Right? Like it, it is going to be a little but what what I like about it is my son realized it's much more positive when he places himself there than waiting for a teacher to place him there. Because then it's a different then the script changes again. Mm. One is voluntary and proactive and one is almost punitive. Mm. Um and so and he, he knows like how each of those feel and he feels really empowered. And the more um, you know, when these small changes and these small steps and these small actions give him that feedback of, yeah, I feel really good. Mm. Um, it just fuels him to continue. Wow. I'd love to have an interaction with your son. That's incredible. <laughs> um, that's, that's amazing. I mean, most adults don't have that down in the slightest. Oh, we're um, still working on it, of course. But <laughs> of course, no, but I mean, geez, these are concepts relatively new to me. Um, I want to touch on a little bit uh, we talked about neuroplasticity, mm -hmm. the ability to change the brain. I, I was wondering if you could touch on it a little bit, because for those of us that don't know neuroscience and are not familiar with that, I think the common perception and narrative around our brains is, um, you know, our brains stop growing and, and mm -hmm. we're not able to to shift those, uh, our mindsets. We're not able to um, open up new, new pathways. And maybe you could touch on a little bit on how you, you know, what practices you use um, in any facet to encourage neuroplasticity and, and why that's important. Right. Um, so I'm going to back up a little bit and, and I'll probably give you a bit more information than, than you, than you expected. But I think when, you know, when, when I was growing up, um, I grew up in the eighties, so just some context here. Yeah. It was definitely sort of believed that by the time you're like, you know, you're 18, your brain is hardwired, and it was always likened to a machine. Mm -hmm. um, now we know that, A, um, our brain is not a machine. Our brain is more like an ecosystem, mm. and uh, which means that it can grow um, and it can adapt. 
And if there's changes in the climate, it will adapt. It, it, it always has and it always will. And the other piece is uh, your brain really is still in development until about 25 years of age, mm-hmm. which is really different than, you know, let's say 20 years ago. Um, now, with that in mind, knowing that our brain is an ecosystem, um, you know, I think we can start looking at our brain rather than this set of, if we code our brain a certain way, which is very machine-based, more it's more like, well, how do I treat my brain in the context of conservation in some ways, once you can talk about an ecosystem, and then also sustainability. Mm-hmm. Once again, talking about um, ecosystem. And so for me, knowing that my brain is an ecosystem, it's very muscular, um, and it is a network of information and a network of many different nuances, then how do I make sure that it remains sustainable? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me personally, um, I do find committing to learning new things is highly important. And it's not even the content of what you learn. It can be you know, learning some geeky new craft, uh, new for me. Um, or it can be learning um, a new piece that I can add to my business. It could be learning how to set up, you know, website, which is something I've had to learn. Right, and and, right, and that right, was right, just right. mainly to like to save the cost. Like you know, as an entrepreneur, you yeah. really learn how to cut costs to cut costs as much yeah. as and run a really tight, like lean ship for sure. Um, but I do find that the more I learn, a the more of my confidence is growing mm-hmm. and realizing, no, there's no way I'm going to know everything in the world, but yeah, like I can, I can try and mm-hmm. I can, and I can get myself at least sort of halfway there. And mm-hmm. then when I get there, I can ask for help. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, it's sort of really seeing myself not as who I am today, but seeing myself as, as where I will be, um, you know, X amount of time from now and really seeing myself as a holistic person from a, if I were to be very, you know, macro, like as a life. Um, so there's that. I do find being in my, in the theta brainwaves to be highly helpful. Um, I say that because most of us, what holds us back are emotional things. Mm. Um, and whether or not we are wanting to admit that or are like fully like, you know, aware of that, but but is it is def- definitely emotional. So to be able to get into that place, into your emotional belief systems, um, into how you relate with everything, mm-hmm. you know, with themes in life, with food, mm. um, these are core pieces um, that will uh, define your health and will define um, you know your physical health, your mental health, but then also like the health of your relationships. Mm. Um, yeah, so that's a big one. And then, uh, and then the alpha. I, I do find being in that flow state in an embodied physical way, where um, I'm not necessarily like I mean I might be like you know exercising or playing a sport per se, but even just in that that state, um, in that joyous embodied state, like even in my garden, um, that mm. that can be immensely um, supportive because. I just know me like I think a lot I'm highly analytical I'm in beta all the time I'm project managing not only my own businesses but also my kids lives like where who do I have to pick up now where do I have to get them like all that stuff um, and you know life is not fun when when it's just defined by beta waves 
I've so, never heard yeah. that before. <laughs> but I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> so um, yeah, so yeah, I, I need to make sure there's that diversity. Right, diversity in your brainwaves. Yeah. We need to make sure that diversity <laughs> in our brainwaves exists. Okay. <laughs> uh, so when you say um, yeah, to encourage kind of like neuroplasticity, you like to get into those theta waves. You like to envision a future version of yourself and future situations and future um, experiences, et cetera, et cetera. That sounds a whole lot like that thing called manifesting. That's um, mm. definitely a, a buzzword around these days. What are your thoughts around that word, that concept, um, et cetera, et cetera? Did you read my posts on manifesting? Because I feel like you've definitely touched on a bit of a um, a trigger point. <laughs> I, did, I didn't. I didn't actually read your post, but okay. please, I'm excited. Yeah, we no, stumbled no. upon it. Totally. Okay. So everything that you had said up till now, yes, it definitely relates, like certainly in the wellness or uh, metaphysics um, fields, um, you know, this concept of manifesting actually has been circulating for a long time, but it's sure. really become a buzzword of, of late. Um, and, you know, I'm assuming that your most of your listeners um, understand what we're talking about, but just, you know, just to make sure that everyone um, is on the same page, it's this idea that you attract the things that happen in your life um, through your belief system, through your uh, through emotions, through how you show up to the world, through what you contribute. And I would say to a certain degree, that is true. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, what I have noticed specifically in the metaphysical or spiritual industry um, is that it's also a very abused belief. What do I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a way to measure your worth against someone else's. Well, I've manifested this. Well, that's because I've earned it. You haven't manifested that. Mm -hmm. There must be something wrong with how you think. Without factoring in race. Wow. Without factoring in age. Mm -hmm. Without factoring in socioeconomics. Without factoring religion. There's a lot of shades that are at play. And I have seen this, and I've called this out a fair bit through my my ceremony Instagram, uh, that that we're treading into really dangerous territory. It becomes spiritual abuse to say, you know, so-and-so, you know, has a seven-figure income and, you know, is living the life of their dreams and has, like, their place in St. Bart's and blah, 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 because they've attracted it Mm -hmm. without actually saying, well, what were the things that played into that? Are they they male? Mm -hmm. Are they white? Mm -hmm. Do they inherit this? You know, like, what were these conditions? And there's nothing wrong with being male and white. I'm just saying that there are these um, cultural, social, and economical, gender, a lot of biases that are playing into these things that are subtle, that you can't just say, well, I manifested it through positive thinking. Um, so that's a big, big one. And I've been definitely talking about that. The other piece that I see is also, to a certain degree, a bit problematic, is when spiritual teachers and spiritual leaders are saying, buy my book take my workshop, come on this retreat with me, and you, yes, you, even if you're in the dumps, even if you're, you know, like $100,000 in debt, you are going to be making X, Y, Z after the session with me. Mm-hmm. And they promise things. And I could, like, it's, 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 it's a very 
capitalistic way to um, exploit um, very ancient spiritual wisdom, you know, wisdom that is rooted in, uh, certainly in, there's Buddhist um, beliefs that talk about this to a certain degree, Taoist as well, um, and uh, Vedic or, or, or um, uh, sort of Eastern um, um, Indian, ancient Indian beliefs. So when people say, oh yeah, like, you know, let's work on your chakra that is associated with um, safety and security, um, I'm not quite sure if the sages then um, had intended for you to be driving a Bentley around. Um, I'm not quite sure if that was the intention. Right. And and, and yet it it's widely talked about it's widely exploited mm. um and you know these these beautiful um teachings didn't come out in a highly uh capitalist um in a highly overworked culture well, what i'd say to that is i think that happiness was just defined differently we've just oh, defined happiness by a bentley and so <laughs> right I mean, that's, right that's yeah. what we're saying yes it's like absolutely. Oh, no, you're, you're, you're going to be in, um enlightened and happy and joyful because you're going to have a Bentley. Right. That has no bearing on anything yeah. in, in real life. So it's like, yeah, maybe those um, um, initial teachers didn't intend for it to be interpreted that way. And that is my personal fundamental um, concern or um, what I nitpick with religions is exactly that. It's like you're taking beautiful core principles and core teachings and manipulating them for capitalistic gain. And for that reason, I'm out. Yeah, <laughs> right. Totally. And, and so, and so that's what that's what draws me personally to to alternative um, personal operating systems and religions and and ways of thinking. Um, but when those same every these are all tools. Every tool can be manipulated. Every tool can be used for good or used for bad. These things just are. Whether you interpret them or use them one way or another, that's up to you. That's up to the teacher. That's up to the organization. That's up to the church. However it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. That's, you know, there's a lot of people that will say, you oh, know, I'm against religion because it is manipulative. Well, you don't fully understand the situation, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I mean, the, um, love thy neighbor. Is that manipul- manipulative? Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, right. um, and I think that, you know, shamanism and m- more spiritual ways of thinking can be manipulated the same way. Like, um, oh, it's it's because you didn't, oh, you had bad experiences here. That's because you didn't sage your apartment, sage your apartment, so shame on you. Da-da-da-da-da. Right. Um, it's just another way of casting judgment. Um, Absolutely. Which yeah. doesn't serve us. Totally doesn't serve us. Um, and I think at the end, it leaves us all very impoverished. Yes. Absolutely. Like, you can be very um, fine. Like, even if those principles, which, I mean, they don't. Even if those principles do make you... Um, filthy rich. Sure. Is your heart feeling that way? Mm-hmm. Like does or like is your heart feeling full? Mm. Um, and and I think that's it's what you talked about the happiness piece. Um, I don't think that uh, there's there's no. I mean, there's correlation between you know some base. Um, you know, like you need a bare minimum to be able to live, a, a, a like a happy life, right? right. Um, in, in terms of dollars. Yes. yes. But after that, yeah. it's it's really quite inconsequential. Yeah. Um, everything else after is is every it's it's the soft skills that you have, it's the relationships you have, it's um, it's your outlook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. So yeah, so going back to the manifestation piece, um, 
you know, even me being in the industry, I'm confronted this all the time. And I'm, I'm definitely in this, this place where it's just like, I have to say something. Um, it would be irresponsible if I don't. Mm. Um, and it's really important for me to make the distinction so that um, my clients know where I stand and what I mean when I say manifest. Um, and the other thing is this. A lot of people are looking for these very quick snake potion solutions. <laughs> yep. Snake f- potions. Right? Like, yeah. no, really. <laughs> but nothing happens overnight. Of course not. Like, you have to pay your dues. And nothing's you effortless. you got to work hard. Nothing is ever effortless. So to think that you are attending some retreat where you're taught a few little spiritual teachings... It's like, and boom, like your life is going to be transformed like that. Like that's, that's, that's a bunch of lies, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you absolutely still have to do the work. You Like there is, uh, yeah, fine. Like even if you went to this retreat or took this course or whatever it is, read this book about, you know, being an, an amazing attractor of good vibes, of wealthy vibes, right. whatever you want to call it, <laughs> that's 1% of that yeah. inspiration because there's still 99% of perspiration that you still have to put in. Yeah. Um, and I don't believe that work is is bad. Right. Like, I, I think that's the other piece. People have come to this place where your work should feel like labor and mm. toil and unpleasant. I, I, I do think that there is a lot of joy that can come through work if you're invested in it. Mm-hmm. You might not even like it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like I've had jobs growing up where I just thought it was really mediocre. Yeah. But the more personal investment I put into it, the more pride was involved in it. And then, yeah, like I look back and I'm like, no, I'm, I'm really happy I did this. Totally. And so I don't know. Is that, I, is, think, I think we need a new word for work. Work is one of the words that I despise. Like work is one. Meeting is another. <laughs> is another one. <laughs> Office is a third where it's just like all of these things are just the worst because first off, like work is work has a negative connotation. Totally. I don't work. I don't work. And I don't want to be those one of those guys like, hey, listen, I love my job. I don't I never worked a day in my life. That's not what I'm saying. Like I, work is not work is work is just a process of building for me. That's what it is. Mm. Right. And and meetings aren't, you know, business deals. Me- meetings are conversations. They're just, a, they're just an exchange. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, sorry, I can't talk right now. I'm in a meeting. Fuck that. I want to say, I can't talk right now. I'm in the middle of an exchange with somebody. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that sounds really weird, but that's that's truly what it means to me. Mm-hmm. Office is like one of these things where like, yeah, we sit down at a desk and we do paperwork. Like, that's not what an office is to me. Like an office is a vibrant place where people come together. Like coffee shops can be offices now yes. and stuff like that. So I need new words yeah. for these three things. And this is something I've been thinking about so much because as you know, like our uh, linguistics, they define how we think. Yes, and, totally. and, and, and I'm like, I need a way to to redefine these three words because my life revolves around those in, in a way mm-hmm. and and I need to reframe those in my mind and then communicate that outwardly I don't have those words um so maybe marinate on that a little bit get back to me if you have any know, new I words love, I love how you yeah. you've mentioned that especially the word work right um so um I, I've had a, a fairly a linear career um, my, I'm sorry, a linear. Yes, a linear career. So um, my my first undergrad, 
uh, is in graphic design. And then, you know, I worked in the industry for, for some time, um, particularly in surface design and product development. And then after I went back to school and um, I got my early childhood education, um, particularly with a Montessori focus. Mm. And the reason why I bring this up is because when I was um, training to become a Montessori educator, we talked a lot about language, right? I mean, we're here working with preschoolers, so 30 months to six years of age, right, just before they get into kindergarten, or it could be up to that. Um, and we talked a lot about language. And one of the words was work. Mm. And we never use the word play in the program yeah. because we wanted to put, to get kids to understand that that play is work and work is play. And we never had a thing called playtime. We never had a thing called work time. It was just you step into the Montessori classroom and it's, it's a beautiful space, as always is, because we really believed um, that, at least all the ones I've worked on, even the Montessori philosophy, is that when a space is inviting and it's inviting curiosity and it's inviting engagement, children will naturally want to learn. And they're not going to call that work. No, of course not. But we called it work because we wanted their experience, their first experience of learning and their first experience of like formal um more structured based learning to feel playful mm-hmm. and so we thought well we're not going to call it play because that's almost in a sense um almost uh it's oversimplifying what it is right so rather than redefine the positive you're redefining the negative and reframing yes it. so i mean it's the same sort of idea that you're saying just a different right. kind of approach Interesting. Um, so kids would say oh i'd like you you know, Miss Mimi, to show me how to work with this. Cool. And we're like, okay, well, let's do this. Cool. So whereas I was like, screw that word. Let's find <laughs> another word. You're like, no, 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 hold on. Let's just change the meaning of that word, which is really cool. And I think you can do from a young age. I'm in more of a entrenched position with that word. I don't know if I'm going to be swayed. <laughs> but, uh, but it can I'm happen. I'm trying to sway you anyway. It's all good. <laughs> uh, so that's no. And that defines how we think about everything. Um you, I don't want to skip over this because mm. this is really cool. Montessori mm-hmm. is a way of teaching, a way of learning. Both. Is, mm-hmm. is um, just a way to think about the world. For those that have no idea what that word even means, can yeah. you kind of dive into that? Because you first explained it to me a couple of weeks ago yeah. and I was like, holy blown, shit, yeah. <laughs> this is crazy. It's like I just saw I just saw in 6D for a second. That was insane. Yeah, so, um, so the Montessori method... Um, was designed by the very first female doctor in Italy named Dr. Maria Montessori. And she designed this program because she had a huge heart for the underserved um, children um, in her community. So she designed a program that was designed for those who were either orphans or mentally um, challenged in some way um, or had experienced some type of trauma Um, and she really felt if she could just design this program and give them the tools that they need to be able to thrive they can then be admitted into uh, you know more schooling Um, but if they didn't have these foundation skills um, they would forever be disadvantaged 
So she designed, this is in the, the, Mont, the, the Montessori preschool program. Um, it's, it's widely within the industry known as the CASA program. Um, and that was what was first designed. And then later on, you know, there were sort of additional pieces that were added on. But the CASA program involved four distinct areas. Uh, one's called Practical Life. And this, she teaches uh, young children basic life skills. How do you put on your clothes? without someone helping you like how do you put on buttons mm-hmm. how do you open buttons how do you tie knots tough. how do you wash hands yeah. so she taught hygiene that's very important um and uh how do you totally uh, yeah, right? sorry like, like how do you use a knife safely how do you cut an apple you know what that's hilarious because it's like these kids me being one of them if your parents aren't around and you've never been taught basic life functions mm-hmm. That just completely gets skipped over. And then it's it just whatever way you've kind of made up yep. just sticks. Totally. It just sticks. And that come back that comes back to bite you in the ass in so many ways. Anyways, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah. Because a lot of times what you do is whatever works. It may not be Exactly. Right? Like it, it's mm-hmm. almost like a coping perspective rather than a thoughtful perspective. Absolutely. Um so yeah, so the the kids as early as thirty months learn how to use a knife safely. Wow. Like, and that was mind-blowing. And in the Montessori program, if you were to, like, there's even something called an infant-toddler program. The kids learn how to use cutlery to feed themselves from a very, very young age. Like, I've Mm. seen nine-month-old babies feed themselves with a fork. Wow. I'm thinking, wow, like, how how is that possible? Um, And she was approaching it because she was a doctor. Right. How do you approach things in a way that I can scale up, mm-hmm. that um, can be promoting as much hygiene as possible. So once again, the washing hands, sure. um, learning how to wash dishes, all these things. These are all kind of part of the practical life um, so that they then can take on more intellectual-based learning later on. Mm-hmm. So there's something called, once again, the practical life. Another module piece was called sensorial, which is taking in the world through your, your senses. Okay. And this is where they learn about not only colors and shapes, but about things such as like when there's one thing that I love, one material is called the color tablets. Mm. And the color tablets is learning how to take, let's say, seven different shades of green and then learning how to put them from lightest to darkest. Mm. And that is very, very subtly talking about the foundations of mathematics, proportions, Mm. percentages, like all these things. and also, it becomes a way to discover and explore the world through art, an artistic lens. But she really just understood that. Moving on, there is something called math, and then there is something called language. So those were sort of the four mm. pillars of the program. And what I shared with you when we first met, uh, which I love, was her approach is always you start with what is physically in front of you, and then you can, from there, kind of branch out. She also really believed in understanding things from a very big picture perspective and then kind of narrowing down into the most minute. So her understanding of math, which is what then fueled um, the program's approach of math, was get the kids to touch quantities. Mm -hmm. And then later on, they can deal with the operations of, you know, the four operations of math. So you want them to understand one, Give them one bead. Mm-hmm. You want them to understand 10, string 10 beads on a single line. 
get them to understand 100, you string 10 um, strings of tens. Mm -hmm. So then at the end, one bead is this tiny little speck, 10 is this one straight line, and then 100 is 10 of these 10 straight lines, which becomes 10 by 10, which right? Becomes so a cube. It, well, it becomes a square, mm. and then a thousand Sorry. becomes a cube because mm. then you have 10 of these hundreds and you stack them up and it becomes a cube. Mm. And then the kids, once they understand this, they can A, visually understand, and then they B, can visually and three dimensionally represent it. Mm -hmm. And then they now can understand okay, well, 5,000 is essentially five cubes, and each cube has like a thousand of these little beads. And then that really makes up the basis of the decimal system. Of course. Um, and yeah, so I found it to be immensely um, inspiring for me. And um, it was, I was able to really not only look at that in approaching um, teaching. Uh, young kids, and then even just teaching, uh, teaching even just the kind of teaching I do now, um, just because it's like, okay, well, how can I start with the concrete and then go into the abstract? How can I start with the relatable and then go into the unrelatable and so forth? Because that's really how people learn. Oh, my gosh. Yes, and I'll tell you, you just said it right there, was starting with the concrete and moving into the abstract. Yeah. Because there's exactly that. There's a disconnect between what I see in front of me and what I can imagine. And it's it's very, in a, such a subtle way, organizing shades of green, building blocks through um, uh, basically an abacus style in terms of, you know, you're very simply putting beads on a line and beads on a line become a square and they, then they become a, a cube. And yeah. all of a sudden I'm building the pathways to understand what the journey is or what the the connection is between concrete in front of me and things I couldn't imagine. And for those of you that are like, well, how does this apply? Because this, this, is, this is very philosophical in sense. Like, for instance, if I say to you, if we see on the news, um, John Doe won uh, $63 million, you go, wow, that's a lot of money but it's just a lot of money to you, right? Versus if you can think in this way, you actually understand what $63 million is. You're able to contextualize it, and because you're able to contextualize it better, you're able to manage it better. And that has direct implications on outcomes in your life mm -hmm. through this very simple concept of taking what's concrete in front, of, in front of you and being able to imagine and then manifest and create and tangibly work with the abstract. The ability to, tan no one ever talks about this, the ability to tangibly Tangibly work with abstract uh, abstract concepts and tangible things is maybe the greatest skill of all. Totally, I mean, it's what makes us human, yeah. right? And it's... that's what you do on like on a day to day basis. <laughs> it, no, it really is is taking these huge ideas and thinking in a way that's uh, irregular. Mm -hmm. And being able to to really like take abstract thoughts and play with them like silly putty, like silly mm -hmm. putty, you know, like that's so cool. Um, I was on a tangent there; you got me going. But where I wanted to go with that um, was exactly what you kind of linked to earlier, and that you have two businesses, two sides of you. One is very concrete. I can see brainwaves. Right, we we can chart these out, mm -hmm. right? And the other is very intuitive. Mm 
-hmm. One is very tactical, one is very intuitive, one is concrete, one is abstract. And that's what makes you so interesting to me because it, it's, it's one thing to sit a person down as an expert in one thing and thinks very thoughtfully and is very experienced about one thing. And those are good conversations about that one thing versus if you come in here, I have no idea what this conversation is going to go because we could use this way of thinking on a hundred different topics, a hundred different things, go a hundred different ways about it. Back to Montessori, right? That's, <laughs> that's no, but that's what, that's what it is. Um, so I want to contrast that a little bit with um, how do you, from a tactical standpoint, you live in a world of science and you counteract it with a world of spiritual uh, spiritual experiences um, and things that are not tangible, things that you feel and you can't see. Do you like, how did that shift come to be for you? And how did you kind of go from this person who was, you know, graphic design to, you know, working in primary schools and now into entrepreneurship? How did you kind of stumble upon what now has become ceremony and core shamanism, et cetera, et cetera? What was your, your journey like there? Right. Um, I think there was one point in my life where I had these very clear boundaries between you know, me be, me being this way, me being that way, and putting, like, you know, as I sort of leave one area, I would switch my hats and put on mm-hmm. the other hat. But I think at this point in my life, um, I, I don't really even see it as different hats. I just, wow. like, they're just, it's just another facet. It, it really is all one. Um, because if it's, purely scientific and I would say that a lot of scientists are highly intuitive mm. like the good ones absolutely right yeah. um, they have to be skeptical absolutely have to be skeptical when they are pushing boundaries and on that edge um, but how would they know what edge to push into if they didn't have that intuition in the right, first place right, right, right. and I would even say same thing with spiritual um, people in the spiritual sector if you're just spiritual and sort of soft and fluffy all the time, um, you're going to frustrate a lot of clients. Yeah. Um, clients want people who are responsive, who reply to emails, <laughs> who do what they say, who yeah. aren't just a bunch of flakes. Yeah, he's a great um, shot. Right? I can't <laughs> reach him for fucking six months. Exactly. He's so, lost in a forest. Right. And you yeah. have to be able to keep promises and like, you know, like, yeah. like be reliable. Use um, those beta waves. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, so I, I see that uh, the integration is really important. Um, how do I get into shamanism in the first place? How much time do we have? Do you oh, want the long fi- story? We're or fine. The- let's, let's go into <laughs> it. Come on now. Okay. Well, um, and, you know, for I, I just want to say that I, I have shared this on other podcasts before. So I want to be mindful of maybe listeners who have listened to my other podcasts. Sure. But I will still mention the key bits. And maybe if there's something that you want me to deep dive a little, then I'm more than happy Let's to. Let's do it. So I would say that I've been fairly intuitive from a very young age. Like mm. I, you know, I have early conscious memories, very, very early conscious memories, like, you know, around three years old-ish, um, speaking to plants. Mm. Um I've, uh, yeah, and of course, back then, um, I was told that they're just imaginary friends and um, have a very active imagination and, you know, that it's not real. Um, 
as a young adult, so around 19, I started experiencing paranormal scent. Um, some people call it clairfaction. So I'm using the word clair, let's say instead of clairvoyance um, or clairaudience, so clairvoyance being able to see something through a vision or clairaudience being able to hear something from a source that's not physically with you here. Clair um, olfaction is smelling something that is not physically in the room. So it's more like spirit smelling. Um, so I started experiencing that around 18, 19. And I would say that's probably my, you know, other than me being able to talk to plants like at a young age, um, that'd probably be like my, like another step into that shamanic world. But I didn't even call it shamanism then. I didn't really know what it was. At the time, I was actually attending church with my mom. So she is, she was Buddhist. She converted to evangelical Christianity when I was in middle school. And uh, my father's an atheist. And so, you know, I've always just sort of been in this home where, um, you know, maybe you don't believe in anything or maybe you totally believe in a very specific type of thing that actually tells you exactly how to do things and how to live your life and, you know, exactly how to believe things. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I think at that time I was just, there was definitely a little bit of the, like, well, what's going on? Um, but I knew it was there. And... I sort of pushed it away in the beginning, um, but it got to a point where I just couldn't ignore it anymore because it was happening so much. Mm. And um, I started uh, documenting it, like you know, in a journal. And I started making sense of what smells equal what thing or what meaning. Um, and so eventually, I would smell things, and I'll. You know, most of the time I'll know what it's actually trying, what the spirits are trying to say to me through the scent. Hmm. And that could be like, call your mom. You know, she probably needs you or needs like a good, you know, like just like a little virtual hug via phone or um, call your friend so-and-so or uh, did you turn off the stove, Mimi? Um, or like little cues, right? Like little safe kind of cues or little nods or even warnings. Um and then, yeah, so in my search for understanding the meaning of that, um, I started exploring with tarot or tarot cards. And I did that because I really believe that tarot, you know, it's, it's a spiritual language, right? It's represented through visual symbols and, um, and thematic symbols. And I, I just had the sense that if I understood that, I'll probably be able to figure out not only what I smell more, but also what I dream. Hmm. And so I taught myself that, you know, it took a number of years to really get good at it. Um, and so that sort of all happened um, sort of 20s into early 30s. Mm -hmm. And by then my first son was born and we had left church by then. Um, and then in the middle, uh, we were, you know, working a lot and I'm um, also trying to have a second child and it just never happened and so finally um, got to a point where I did get pregnant again and um, I, uh, I was able to retain the pregnancy uh, you know past the first trimester and very soon after that first trimester I started hemorrhaging um, and that from my previous miscarriages I had a few um, I was like, oh my gosh, like that's how the, they started. So I thought, oh, this, this just can't the be happening again. Yes, yeah. this can't be happening. I can't be losing another baby. Like, mm -hmm. no, no, no. Um, and uh, it was early in the morning. I was getting my son 
you know, ready for school, you know, lunch made, all that. And the doorbell rang. So I go down to the door, open the door, and there's nobody there. And he and I are like, what? You heard the doorbell. Yeah, I heard the doorbell. And then we look across the street, and there's my spirit animal, um, a heron. Mm. And so the bird just looks at me straight, like straight at me, and then it flies away. And through that, I was like, yes, this, this, this pregnancy is going to be fine. Like, this baby will be fine. This baby will live. Um, I didn't know the how, um, but I just, I knew it was a message. And so there'll be these little sort of messages here and there, like omens, whatever you want to call them. Um, but my first experience um, with a shamanic journey or in a shamanic journey was when I was um, on bed rest with, with that second child. So basically I, I was hemorrhaging and, you know, got a lot of tests done. They couldn't figure out what it was. So they put me on bed rest and it was a five and a half month bed rest. So from early in the second term all the way to week 37 of my pregnancy. It's a long time to be in bed. Very long time. Yeah, it was, it was hard. <laughs> Excruciating, I'm sure. Yeah, sit still for five getting, months. Right? Yeah. It's, it's brutal. Yeah. Um, yeah, my beta waves are going, ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, but I decided to meditate during that time because I thought, well. Don't have anything else to do. Nothing else to do. Yeah. Let's, you know, let's be really productive. Let's, mm-hmm. let's learn how to, you know, come in and out of those brain waves. Right. In a, in a nimble sort of um, self-regulated way. Yeah. And it was one of those days in meditation, I accessed that spirit world and I met um, a few more of my allies and they said some, some prophetic things, mm. which, you know, came to unfold exactly how I was told later on. Um, and I knew that I tapped into that, like a, a whole new place. Mm-hmm. And so that, I would say that was my, my first experience in that world. And then later on, um, I won't go into all the details, but later on I did find, um, a second generation female shamanic practitioner um, off of uh, Vancouver Island who taught me uh, more the, you know, the formal language and the safety and the ethics. Um, and, uh, you know, I still keep in touch with her from time to time. And, you know, I've worked with a teacher such as uh, Vicki Noble. She designed um, a shamanic uh, tarot deck Oh. Like a beautiful deck. Um, the deck is called Mother Peace, and so where she she co-created it, um, and uh, yeah, and, she, and she's she's still you know alive and well. I mean that, that that deck's been around since the seventies, if if I'm correct. Don't quote me on that. I think late seventies it came out. Um, yeah, and I think just a lot of a lot of pieces just sort of came together. Mm-hmm. So um, I think everyone's initiation is different, and. Um, you know, and, and I'm careful to make sure that I refer myself as a shamanic practitioner, not a shaman, um, because a I don't come from a a lineage of shamans. You know, I'm I'm not indigenous um, to a shamanic tradition. It, um, and, and I'm not diminishing um, work by other shamanic practitioners, but I just really want to make that clear distinction because there, there is a difference. Um, and there's even a difference between those who practice 
shamanism in their own modality. Mm -hmm. So for instance, there may be like, you know, Reiki therapists that practice some shamanism. That is still different than let's say a shamanic practitioner because I almost exclusively work in this realm. And, you know, I've made commitments to the spirits and um, and into sort of my, you know, my personal accountability to to what it is I do. Um, Sorry, could you you, uh, pull the mic a little bit closer? Sorry. So, uh, so yes, I've made like, you know, personal promises to the spirits and making sure that I'm accountable um, in, 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 you know, in all aspects of my life, Um, which is a little bit different than, uh, let's say, someone who integrates shamanic um, disciplines in their practice not to say that they're that you know that there's no ethics around what they do sure. I'm just it's just a different type of commitment mm-hmm. uh, it's I think my commitment is really with the unseen world um, and it just materializes here in the seen world um, yeah hopefully that answers Holy your question shit. a bit <laughs> she went um no it's great it's awesome i love i can just like i can give you like a half a half eye wrinkle and you're like oh i okay no he wants me to go this way and you just have this way of interpreting i don't even have to say anything (laughs) or do anything it's just like you're you're gone you're going the directions that we need you to go in which is beautiful um there's a lot of directions to go off of that um maybe you can break it down for a simpleton like me when i go okay so she's a shaman versus okay what is that Versus she's a sh- uh, shamanic pra- practitioner. Okay, what is that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is that the same as tarot cards? How does, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like I've spent some time in the Caribbean and have some experience with voodoo. And I'm like, well, is that the same? Like, I don't, what, right. can you do, can you make this a little bit clearer in my mind and in listeners' minds maybe? Sure. Um, so let's talk about shamanism, period, as a discipline. So shamanism is typically an earth-based practice. So you are in relationship with the earth okay. and you're, you're in relationship in the sense that um, they are not at your beck and call. Mm. You're not some, you know, how maybe Hollywood depict a sorcerer. Sure. Like, you know, they wave their wand and boom, this thing happens. Yeah. Um, but they're in relationship with uh, the earth. And I mean, like maybe plants or animals or even the elements like sun or fire. That's another element of, you know, sure. fire and sun are the same thing essentially, or water or wind or air. Like those are elements. And they're working in with them to A, seek uh, counsel mm-hmm. um, and then deliver that message to uh, people, to, mm-hmm. to other humans. Um, and so typically uh, the practitioner or the shaman herself, himself, uh, is acting as a bridge for that to take place. Um, oftentimes there's divination. So divination is looking into the future of what has not yet happened into potentials and then saying, yeah, this is probably the most likely thing that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously based on what the person does with that information because if they choose to turn left instead of right, then the outcome may be different. Um, but Judging on the current circumstance, how it's going, this is the most likely outcome. Mm. And I do do a fair amount of that in um, my readings with clients. Um, they will say, you know, uh, you know what, like, what does my next two years look like? Like, look like, sure. or, um, you know, what what is my next move in my work, or whatever it may be. Um, so, so yeah, there's fair amount of that kind of work that uh, those in shamanism will do. Sometimes they'll do things like. Um, create harmony between the spirit world 
and the physical world. So uh, maybe there's an energy from the past uh, that continues to impact you today. Mm-hmm. And it could be through somebody in your lineage that no longer you know, lives in, in three-dimensional physical form, um, that were, but something from that, from your lineage or from your line, mm-hmm. um, is still affecting you. Or it could be even like you as a soul, you've lived in another time and place and that's still affecting you. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people, uh, in that, you know, in shamanism will, will do that. There's also some magic. Um, and when I say magic, I don't mean like Harry Potter, Harry Potter. Potter well kind of but kind of not right like I mean Harry Potter I think is highly romanticized Mm -hmm. and stylized um, and it's also approaching as like they are the master of the world and they're calling these spirits at their beck and call and with shamanism like you are just another component right like there's there's no hierarchy so to speak and certainly the practitioner or the shaman herself is not at the apex of that hierarchy Mm. meaning they can ask you can ask, but, but you, you can't command, yeah. right? Um, but but you may be able to, um, which is a little bit different, let's say, than uh, witchcraft. Mm. It's, it's it's kind of venturing into something else, and or even voodoo and, and so forth. Like you're you're manipulating energies in a little differently than let's say shamanic work. Um, yeah, but but oftentimes there may be sort of working with certain plants that will optimize conditions. Um, you know, for instance, I may work with plants that will optimize my tendency to get more information through my dreams. Mm. Um, and then when I wake up in the morning, then I can sort of recall and, and write that down, that type of thing. That's how the the name ceremony um, came about. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I didn't know what to name her. So <laughs> I work with some plants before bed. I asked my spirit allies, went to bed. First thing, first thought when I woke up the next day was the word ceremony. Cool. Boom. Um, so yeah, like, I mean, there's, there's things you can do in that way. Um, so that's, would be shamanism. Um, you asked about tarot. So tarot is, um, it's a, imagine, um, it's almost like a book, but it's not a book. They're, they're represented rather than through pages, they're through cards. Mm -hmm. There's typically about 72 cards in a deck, but it differs from deck to deck. There's many different styles. Uh, many, many different creators or artists behind these decks. But it follows loosely a theme. Um, and the theme is composed of two sections. One is called the Major Arcana. The other is called the Minor Arcana. And the Major Arcana would be the big picture themes um, that a, a, a person typically goes through. Mm. They'll go through um, the theme of or the archetype of a fool Hmm. to someone who has mastered some elements and is is starting to manifest. Wow. So that Mm -hmm. would be, for instance, the magician. Um, They may go through an archetype of being a lover. They may go through an archetype of being um, a hermit. They may go through an archetype of... Um, you know, playing with the devil, like all these sorts of different themes. And we all have gone through it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, when you think about adolescence and early 20s, there's a lot of devil energy, right? Mm-hmm. Like lots of playing with risk and um, danger and things like that <clears throat> and shadow. Um, and essentially, it's a story that most humans go through, might not necessarily be in that order, but these are, you know, archetypal 
um, themes that most humans go through. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they're yeah. kind of seasons of our lives. Seasons of our lives, yeah, right? Okay. Um, and they're represented by like specific characters because that's like an easy way to communicate these ideas. Which is essentially what you do. Like, I don't mean to cut you off here, yeah. but that's essentially like my interpretation of this whole thing, Very is you, you simply translate. You're a translator that's, mm-hmm. in one way or another. You know, some people translate languages some people translate energy some people translate experiences you kind of do all the above um and saying you know this is this is what this means um or this is my interpretation this is my translation and if anyone that's worked with language knows that you the the best people that translate are people that don't translate necessarily the words but they translate the idea yes um and and that's kind of the common theme that i'm seeing a little bit here so like whether it's i will go to one of these people that work with energy in these ways and we've named them, you know, and it's like, I'm looking for someone to spell this out for me, my surroundings, my energy, my, whatever it may be, everything that's in my domain right now and translate that to me in a way that I can understand. Am I kind of right? Totally. Totally. It's your, um, you're interpreting it for them. Thank you. Right. Cool. 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 So, so, so sorry, there's a deck of 72. Right. Um, they, they all, they, they interpret seasons of your lives in various ways, but they're written differently. There's various different cards. I'm confused about the whole thing. Yeah. So what I just described up till now, um, uh, was just the major arcana, sure, okay. right? So, uh, and that is not all seven, not all 72 cards are part of the major. Oh, okay. There's something called the minor too. Oh my gosh. And the minor are four suits and each suit, it starts with an ace and it finishes with a 10. Wow. And then there's something, and this isn't, you're gonna be able, you know exactly where I'm going here. Then there's a jack. (laughs) And there's a queen. Okay. And a king. And once again, the four suits. And the four suits, there's something called a pentacle or a diamond. Something called cups or a heart. Wow. There's something called clubs or wands. And there's something called um, swords or spades. Right. So that's where poker cards came from. It came from tarot. Because when... <laughs> what? The- yeah. So when <laughs> the witch hunt happened in Europe yeah. and, you know, um, the church, the capital C church, yeah. was eradicating... Sorry, what do you mean by capital C church? For those, like- well, when I say the capital C church, I mean like the missionaries and yeah. the the system, like the state, yeah. right? The state that was saying this is the only acceptable and legal way to be. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying a small local church. I'm saying like it was a whole system. Yeah. Um, and they were going through the um, the earth-based practices and saying this stuff is of the devil. Mm-hmm the tarot had to go into hiding and it came up, it came out of the hiding because it transformed into a deck of playing cards. Crazy. And if you really think about it, there's still certain parts of the world where playing a pack with a pack of playing cards is still considered of the devil, like very, very traditional, um, orthodox, uh, not all, but like there are some like sex within Christianity that they don't touch the cards. Wow. And it, it, it might be because there's gambling involved sometimes when For you sure. play with cards, but, yeah. um, but it's also just because there is this old, old memory that it links to tarot. Wow. So the minor arcana, which is what I just okay. talked about, yeah. those are the flavorings of the themes. 
those are the accessories. So because a lover might look like many different types, like they, you know, the, the lover archetype might wear a jean jacket, but it might wear just a sweater or might wear. And so the, the minor kind of are just sort of the accessories and it gives that personal flavor mm -hmm. to the story. So you need both to be able to tell that story. And when a reader, when a tarot reader is shuffling the cards or asks, you know, you as a client to shuffle the cards, shuffling is really just putting energy into something. Um, and you're asking that question and they'll lay everything out at the end. And of course, where the card is placed and which card, you know, is is in that specific placement, it'll mean a different thing. And the combination of cards will mean a different thing. They can tell a lot of very, very accurate, like eerily accurate information. Hmm. Um, about you or the circumstance or the question that, you know, is related to the reading. Um, but what's interesting is it's immensely human. And I think for me, that's why I love it, because it's like what you said, it's, that's a part that's relatable. That's a part where it's feeling based. That's a part that is also, it just transcends. It transcends trends. It transcends um, belief systems because humans are humans. Like mm -hmm. we're all going to go through these experiences. Like there's this card called death. We've all experienced death, right? It's a thing that scares us. It's a thing that it's the edge. And we all think that if we go to the edge, we'll die. Mm -hmm. um, but what's amazing is when you merge out of death, you completely transform and you're wiser and stronger and, you know, all that. Um, so I think it's a very accurate way to explain the human condition Mm. Um, you know, the light side, the shadow side. Um, and yeah, and it certainly has experienced, like tarot has definitely experienced a resurgence in probably the past five or so years. It's it's part of pop culture now for the most part. Like yeah. the fact that we're, we are talking, about, talking it, about, like, about it, like, yeah. yeah. For sure. um, That's crazy. I yeah, know there's definitely a, a renewed interest in it, hands down. Um, it's, uh, I didn't, I had no idea around the history of it. That's pretty wild. I, I really, didn't know that it relates in those ways. Um, maybe we could get a little bit more into uh, what you do and, and how you work with people and what your business is about and how you kind of, because you have all this background knowledge and have like kind of like laid out the philosophy mm -hmm. and a little bit of the history and it's like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. But what does she do? If I'm a listener, I'm asking myself right now, what does she do? Right. So how do you how do you work with clients? How do you work with, uh, how do you interact with the world in this sense? Because you you spoke a little bit about um, the capitalistic nature of things, interrupting, you know, what's pure, what's good, what's genuine, um, what's true to form and true to nature. Um, so how do you interact with this all and, and what feels right to you? How do you work in this space today? Right. Um, I think for me, if I were to sum up my work with ceremony, it's a to connect clients to the spirits to mm. their spirits number one and b is to remind them that they are their own healers mm. i'm not here to make a client reliant on me forever i don't want them to be emailing me every other day saying i don't know what to do what do my spirits want me to do blah 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 because then you're creating a dependency um so typically they come see me, um, and there's a variety of different ways. Either, you know, and when I say see me, they may not be like face to face mm -hmm. because I do have clients um, outside of the city. Um, so they may, their interaction may, with me may be an online course or a series of online courses. It may be attending an event in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, it may be uh, asking me to do a reading for them where, and I'll talk about the reading um, 
a bit more in depth in a moment, but yeah, I'll answer do. this question first. For sure. Um, so it might be, yeah. So they might be asking me to do a shamanic reading where I go into the spirit world and bring back insights for them in their specific context and their question. Um, it could even be working with uh, plant medicines that I like. I have a collection of plant medicines, um, and plant the plant medicines I work with. Just to be really specific for your listeners, are common plants. I do not work with entheo um, gen plants, so like I, they're not psychedelics. So, um, and I use them in a way. Uh, where it will support your aura and even support your skin. Um, mm-hmm. My collection, there's like a, like a shamanically made skincare line as well as an aura care line. And of course, a lot of times, you know, clients wind up sort of integrating a little bit of everything. They might take a specific course um, and, uh, and, you know, and use a couple of uh, the aura care just to sort of support them in, in their search. Um, and yeah, might, I, you know, it may be the sort of a one-time thing. It might be like a short-term thing you know, for like about six months or so. And then I, I might never ever see them again or interact with them again. And they may come back a little later, that type of thing as they level up. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's really at a core what it is that I do. Mm. Um, I think the big thing is I like to say the work that I do is helping people remember. And what I mean by remember is R E and then hyphen member. So think of the word in the context of dismember. When we dismember something, we've lost something that's part of us, right? We've lost an arm or a leg. When you remember, you're reattaching that piece that has always been part of you. So most of my clients report that they have a heightened sense of intuition, that they're better able to integrate that science part of themselves with that spirit or intuition part of themselves and be that one and be in flow Um, and they're really optimizing both tools because that's what humans have Um, and then the other piece is that they just feel so much more connected and aligned with their personal purpose Mm. okay so there's a geez (laughs) oh boy um there's a couple ways to go uh let's go this one though so you you have this sort of interaction with your clients. Um, there's products that you you know there's there's ways that you can monetize off that. I guess my question to you would be, is we're both in practices um, in professional lives that um, are almost all professional lives where there's exchange of money can go left, and how we interact with our professions really like defines our ethics and our values. Like I find like. You know, okay, so you can have one line of work, you can be a doctor, but that doesn't tell me anything about you. Like Mm -hmm. it's, how do you, my question to you would be, is how do you interact with your, in your businesses? How do you interact in the ecosystem you've created Mm -hmm. of ceremony Mm -hmm. um, that feels right versus some other ways you could go? What is it about Mm -hmm. you or your business that stands out to you as saying, okay, well, some people do it this way, but I've chosen to do it it this this way for these reasons. Right. Um, Well, you are the company that you keep. Mm. So I'm really careful about that. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm not hanging with every spiritual healer or mystic out there Mm -hmm. for for very specific reasons. Um, And that's, you know, locally. And uh, it's also, you know, internationally, mm-hmm. just because we have something called technology where, you know, we have that option to, to be able to do that. So that's that's number one. Number two, I do give back. So 
uh, 2% of my wholesale and my event sales and my one-on-one um, does go back awesome. to a pool. Um, and then 5% of my retail also goes back to a pool. And the pool is divided into uh, scholarships for clients who would like to take courses with me. Wow. But don't necessarily have the means to and the other bit uh, goes back to the nature conservancy of canada wow and nature conservancy that organization it took me you know i, I definitely i just didn't want to give back to any environmental cause sure um for me you know being a very um a very responsible charity um, was was a big piece. Like I didn't want to be donating to a charity where most of their funds are just put into um, marketing or you know like cheesy leaflets yeah. and like assets that I get in the mail that are a total waste of money. Because do you read pamphlets? Of course I don't, not. Like yeah. so for me, I just yeah I had to do that due diligence and make sure like which which charities out there are the best managed according to my metrics. Of course. Um, and yeah, it came down to the Nature Conservancy and then they happened to have a division which is like for Canada. Awesome. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's another way. Sure. And I think a big thing is um, I really just, I feel that, um, you know, if there's ever, like, and this happens, a client comes to me, they're like, hey, this is what I'm looking for and I say, I'm not the right person for you. Let me refer you to so-and-so. Mm -hmm. I think it would be a much better fit. I just don't really believe in seeing people as competition. Yeah. Um, you know, we're all here to help other people um, feel more in tune, more alive, um, more in their purpose. Mm -hmm. So if I know that I'm not the right person for them, it doesn't make, it just makes no sense that I'm saying that I'm the right person for them. Like mm -hmm. I need to make sure that they're placed um they're matched with with someone that is a right. is the best fit right um according to what i know right like yeah. i mean i obviously have my own limitations um but at least I'll, I'll tell them why i'll say well this is why i think that so and so may be a better practitioner for you wow um yeah interesting yeah i know many 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 people in many professions don't do that um this is um a little bit off but do you do any work in um any past life regressions or any of that how much like when people when clients come to you what are they asking for mm. and is that one yeah. of the things they're asking for right i would say um for my remote shamanic readings and uh okay i can get into this now right Please. so remote shamanic readings are when a client asks me to travel to the spirit world to explore a specific question or to get an, you know, just to get some type of answer about that specific topic and answering your question, yes. So the most common questions are, what is my life purpose? Um, I have this, okay, that's question one. Question two, I have this wound. I have done everything humanly possible to address this wound. I believe that it's of a spiritual root. I don't even know if it's from this life or a previous life, but could you please explore that? And if it's in a previous life, is there anything you could do to resolve that in the previous life? So that's a very common question I get. Um, question three is, uh, well, another one, a really common one, especially if they're a new client, is who are my spirit allies? Mm -hmm. Why are they my spirit allies? And you know, what can I do to be in, um, in communion with them? 
you know, in my everyday reality. Um, and uh, and a fourth one would be, you know, the love question. Like, is there a, a person the, like the, out the there for thing. me? Yeah. And uh, and you know, sometimes it will be sort of a you know, I'm at a crossroads. Is it option A or B? Hmm. Like, you know, like that, that, that happens a lot. Hmm. And I would say that those questions are probably the same questions that tarot readers get and psychic mediums get. Hmm. Um, I just approach it differently. I don't consult cards, even though I can, but that's just not really what my offering is. And I'm not a psychic medium, so I don't, you know, have that ability to just sort of immediately download that information through spirits. I have to go through ritual and, um, and, you know, and, and go into it. So, uh, how it looks is typically someone will email me and say, hey, I would really like for you to go on a journey on my behalf. This is what I'm looking at. And then we'll find a time that I'm available um, that they uh, would like me to journey. And the reason why I have to say that is because sometimes it might be symbolic, right? So it might be like if it's a love thing, maybe they're leaving a relationship and they're stepping out to another one and they definitely don't want or do want me to explore it on a specific date because it represents something for them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it doesn't really matter uh, whether or not they're available um, or not because they're not involved in this other than giving me consent. Mm. They're not physically with me in the room. They don't even have to be in the same city as me um, mm. or time zone or whatever. Um, they give me the permission. I give them a list of, um, you know, steps of what they can do to enhance their receptivity to the information once I come back. But that doesn't affect my reading. Um, it just helps them be more open to it. Mm. And then on that day, on that said day that we agree upon, I go journey. Um, if it's a new client, I have to befriend their spirits because if I'm not friends with them, they're not going to share anything with me. Um, it's just like humans. So I have to earn their trust. Mm. And so I go, I earn their trust. Um, and then I ask them the question or present them with a the request. And then typically it's shared through... For me, it's not like this for other practitioners necessarily, but for me, it's highly visual and sometimes it involves scent and, you know, maybe some feeling. And um, I take in all that information and then I come back and then I type it all up in a massive email. Mm. And as I'm typing up that massive email, I'm still in active trance. So I'm still highly in that theta brainwave state. And this is actually what's really unique to our conversation is that because we've spent time talking about brainwaves, your listeners really get this benefit of understanding of why this works. Mm -hmm. Because I'm able to really look at things from that. It's unbiased in the sense that I'm not personally invested in it, but it's also very factual because I'm relating to these memories and these desires from a very emotional place that will be very receptive to the client because that's why they're asking. Mm. Most people don't come asking me something if they're if they don't have questions, if mm. they if their heartstrings aren't pulled in a certain way, right? Mm. Like so for me to be able to be really relational and be like, yes, like that thing that you worded as I'm concerned, it's actually not concerned. You're like fucking panicking and very stressed out about this. Mm. Uh, Cuz now I get to see it in the right. journey. Right. So, yeah, in this world, I'm typing up the narrative and so that email, there's three parts. There's part one is the narrative, the shamanic narrative. This is what happened. This is who I spoke with. This is what they said. This is what it looked like. 
And then part two is the interpretation. That thing that happened, well, that means this. This animal that showed up, well, when that animal shows up, it means that you are most likely gifted in this capacity. Translation. Yes, all the translating happens. And then part C is, here's your spiritual homework. Hmm. And so there's tangible, you know, call to action, so to speak, your CTAs at the end. Um, and yeah, so it's this massive email, and then I beep, and you know, it goes off to them. How do you come up with those CTAs? What is that? How do you figure out what the homework mm -hmm. is? Well, sometimes it's uh, provided through the journey itself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes else, you know, it happens to be this theme around, let's say, archetypes. I might, you know, prov I might provide a couple books, you know, some Jungian archetypal healing books that mm -hmm. I know um, are, and that is, you know, immensely helpful in mm -hmm. this particular topic. There might be some herbs that I know provide spiritual support in that theme mm. um and i'll just list them yeah and so and it's you know it's unique to the individual and obviously some some herbs will be more widely uh recommended than others right. and there are some that have more of that generalized medicine and other ones are very specific so mm. i'll talk about that um yeah but i think what's amazing is that this person then gets this roadmap and they can refer to it for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, depending on the question, of course. So now, I'm interested now to 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 see what your how do you form that connection with that person? That's the only thing that's like, well, how do you? You know, know, you know, you know what's really amazing. So when they book, I have no idea who they are usually, unless sure. it's a repeat client, which sure. is different. But if they're a brand new client, I have no idea who they are. Right. I don't ask them a single thing. I don't ask them, what's your birthday? Where were you born? I don't ask them the typical astrologer stuff. Because right. astrologers, they need those things to be able to, you know, of course. put together a chart. I don't because in my work, that's not relevant. Hmm. doesn't even matter, like, you're gendered. Like, none of it matters to me. I just need the question and the consent. That's hmm. it. After the journey, that client feels that I've known them for decades and I feel like I've known them for decades mm. because what comes through is so it's so intimate and special and like unique to the individual and it's wilder than fiction like there's no way I can make it up mm -hmm. um, and they know that I can't make it up because there's things that I'm telling them that are so private and so personal that they haven't told anyone else um, so how could I have known that considering I don't even know what the birthday is mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what's so special because spirits have a way to make sure that humans are supported as long as we are receptive to their support. Mm -hmm. um, how do you hone this skill? How have you honed this skill? How has this your interpretation um, grown from mm. 1918 um, to today? What, what, what was it like and when you were first working with your first clients to your skills today? Um, that yeah, I would say that, well, practice, right? Practice, of pra course. Tons of practice. But I feel that I've been practicing through um, the clarifaction gift that I have and through me, you know, daily working on interpreting my own dreams, my own nocturnal dreams, mm. um, and then working with tarot mm. because they now, the spirits use that as a medium, mm. right, to explain things to me. Um so for instance, if a journey, if there's a lot of water in journey, like be it if it's a lake 
or a river or an ocean and depending on how tumultuous the waves are that is telling me a lot of information right there of course right like i know this is a highly emotional person or this topic is really making them feel pulled and they don't know how to they just don't know how, what to decide. They don't know which which way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, and then what I mean by practice makes perfect is the more you do it, the more spirits you meet. Um, and, uh, you know, now I know that if, um, if a person has, let's say, um, a panther for an ally, they're most likely very entrepreneurial. Mm. I just know that because I've done enough where the theme continues right i see um or if there's like let's say a snow leopard highly likely they're very good communicators and that typically will come out through being verbal communicators or they're writers Mm. um or yeah that type of thing Mm -hmm. so very interesting how do you think about death oh um you know I think about it a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, but I don't see it in a morbid sort of way. Mm. I, well, I, I work with death a lot um, just because a lot of my work involves speaking to ancestors. Mm-hmm. That's another question that I get commonly from clients is, can you speak to my, you know, great grandmother or what that kind of thing? Sure. Um, so. Um, I, I don't call them up from the dead. It's different. I go visit them. Hmm. So there are, for instance, going back to like, let's say, uh, um, in certain magical disciplines, you call back the dead and they come here. Hmm. I don't do that. Um, and uh, there's there's some dangers around that because you can displace them. Um, and uh, you have to be very savvy to know how to to make sure they have a way to go back. Um, so I don't do that. I go travel and I go to them and I get whatever inter- information or you know loving words and then I come back here. So I'm the one that's doing the mm. traveling. Mm. Um, but going back to the death piece is, I think it's just a very natural part of life. Uh, we've already gone through deaths. You know, when we left our mother's womb, that is in many ways was a death. Mm. You know, a death of what, our norm, normal was, and we entered into a new normal. Hmm. And we've gone through many deaths. Every breakup we've had, every like new job, you know, like job ends, a new job, every you know, end friendship that sort of fell apart. Like we've died many hmm. times. Um, you've had a surgery. In some ways, you've you've died because then you had to go through this period of recovery, and maybe some, you know, really honest questions of your identity. When I left. Um, maidenhood and entered into motherhood that was a death Um, it was a death and me understanding well you know how do I relate as a woman now like my physical body and like the tangible let's say stretch marks that remain those types of things to how do I make sure that I'm still cared for while caring for others Um, you know my children and so I think in some ways we're really scared of death, but we're really familiar with it too. Um, and you know, once we're dead, it doesn't matter because A, we're gonna be dead and we won't be able to, like we won't even know that we're dead because it's over. Mm-hmm. Or we get recirculated in a sense back to like a greater story, mm-hmm. right? You come back. 
um, maybe as a different human, maybe as a different expression. Um, I have my thoughts on it, but there's no way that I factually know until I've gone through it. Um, but I have a feeling we've gone through it already. We just don't remember. Hmm. So, so what you're saying is that a physical death, a biological death, is is really just an identity death. That's really what that just is. It's just, it's just another chapter. Just another chapter. It's just another way through. Mm-hmm. What are your personal thoughts on it then, of that physical death? Because this is maybe the biggest question. Yeah, in, no, it's true. In right? history. It is, because I think this is the other piece that makes us humans. Right. I don't think our primate ancestors thought about that. Right. Um, I don't think they thought about, what am I going to do Yeah. after, you know? Who like am I going to be? How is it? What's I don't, next? I don't even think they're, I mean, I don't even think they're totally cognizant of sure, death, right? Sure, like, sure, so, sure. Um, for me, I believe that we're energy, and energy is never lost. It just changes. That's, you know, borrowing Einstein. Um, And that the form will probably look different. And um, the deaths that I have gone through, you know, the metaphorical deaths, it's always been better, like once I entered into the next chapter. Sure. And so I'm not too fearful of it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not to say that when someone you dearly love leaves that it's not sad. Um, but I don't think they're sad. I think we're the ones, the ones that are left yeah. behind. We're the ones that are sad. Of course. Um, but there's gifts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, this type of thing, death is one thing. The whole, the whole shaman, the whole magic, the whole, all of that is so interesting because we, as we progress through time, like for instance, in you know, in the year 900 we thought that you know lightning was the gods or whatever it may be and as we continue to go and science continues to develop and grow and goes deeper you know more micro into ourselves and more macro into the universe we continue to uh, debunk things things that were um used to be called magic or you know worked in kind of these weird realms and now they're oh no this works this way as we kind of thought it did previously we just called it something different Mm -hmm. but we know it works this way for these reasons Mm -hmm. um and this is how the universe is governed so with that it's interesting for me to have these conversations with a person like you at this point in our scientific development to be okay what is out of reach what is in reach because you work in a in a you work in spheres that are within reach scientifically and out of reach scientifically which is super interesting and that gap is 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 our progression and is what's next and is the future um and gives us hints and i'm not saying all these things are going to be right or correct but it gives us a good direction to go into um with that context here what how do you think we're going to be thinking about these themes in a hundred years in 200 years in 500 years what do you think the thought's going to be then Mm. Um, well, if the earth is still around, if the earth is still around or we're still right? here, yeah. um, the earth will be here, whether we're on it or not, yeah, yeah. Is, is a different, right. Um, I think, I mean, for me, science is really interested in talking about quantifiable, tangible data, right? And, you know, going back to thunder or lightning as gods, people who say those are gods say it because they came from the understanding that, wow, like this force 
brought extensive change. Right. Right. Like this lightning bolt hit this really dry tree and in this the really fire dry forest. And like it's gone. right. Yeah. Like whoa. Um, but the fact is, thunder still thunder, lightning still lightning, devastation and change still happened, and new growth came out of it. Right. Right. Um, whether or not that was a moral thing, like oh, I did this, and then you know the lightning gods smited this tree um, is a different thing. But the fact is um, change came through and they were, you know, maybe some didn't survive and some did, but, you know, adaptation happened. So for me, I feel that um, I think what I love about my work is it's, you totally talked about this earlier, is I love looking at themes and I love applying that to maybe something that didn't necessarily embrace that theme in that same way. Mm. So I think the future of science is being able to be better at that, being Mm. able to integrate more. Um, I mean, you see it right now. Um, Science, uh, you know, I think a lot of change is going to happen in automation and algorithms, and more and more humans are going to be um, out of work, out of conventional work. I think there'll be more and more humans that are taking on more than one job, um, just out of survival and perhaps out of having multiple interests. Um, and I think, uh, you know, humans are going to just need to get really creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know this because education from a um, systematic perspective has failed um, humans today because it's based on a very antiquated system from mm-hmm. before, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, education system as we know it right now is based off of what equipped people for the military and for agriculture. Um, well, that's just not how humans operate anymore. So things have to change. So there has to be bridges made between neuroscience and child development, more so than it does now, and how that, and, you know, and education. And I would say to a certain degree, spirituality, because I think this huge boom of people interested in tarot and in mysticism is because people are in deep search for meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you can you can quantify it all you want and describe it all you want through data, but if it doesn't mean anything, yeah. it really what's the point? We're totally in a in a meaning crisis and a purpose totally, crisis. Right? It's crazy. A lot of people don't even realize it yet, but it's. It's here. It's evident, and, and and I I'm truly an optimist, but I do believe it's going to get worse um, as we go here before it gets better. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So these things might help us bridge that gap. Now, geez, we covered so much, but now, as you're, how, how long in this practice? You've been you've been working in this field for a while now. Well, yes and no. Um, I've been, so Ceremony will be coming up to her fourth birthday. Okay. Um, on Boxing Day. Okay. But that's like Great time formal. to launch a company. Yeah. <laughs> that's like more formal, right? Sure, sure. Like, well, your experience, your education, yeah. when does that date back to? Well, I don't know. Back to when I was three years old? Really? I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, and I think for me, it's, you know, what I'm sharing with you right now is things that, um, you can see, but I think prior to that, there was a lot of internal struggle, right? Like, um, and the internal struggle is, 
no, there's no way that I can pick this stuff up. Like, sure. there's no way I'm that kind of intuitive. Like, I'm normal intuitive, not like that that kind of intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of this, like, am I ready to come out of the witch's broom's closet, so to speak, right? Like, that, that kind <laughs> of stuff. The witch's broom closet, that's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then there was the, oh, no, like, there's no way I can make this my nine to five because, like, no, no, no normal person does this like yeah. as a nine to five and, you know, no, but I don't wear like goth clothes and like flowy clothes and all this. Yeah. Like I, you know, I kind of, I'm very like kind of in many ways mainstream. Like I just was really struggling with this internally. So um, the way I bring, the reason why I bring this up is because I think all those parts are really important to talk about in giving birth to a company because right. when you finally give birth to a company, you've essentially um, have asked those questions and have um, maybe not completely put them to rest, but you've 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 confronted them in some way. Um, wow! Yeah, wild witch entrepreneur. I love it. That's <laughs> hilarious. That's so funny. So so now throughout all this, what are you fired up about now? What are you trying to learn about now? What's what are you trying to wrap your head around now? What are you interested in? Where are you going? I'm really wanting to bridge ceremony with open minds in a much more obvious way rather than seeing them as two separate businesses. Right. I don't know what that looks like yet. Mm. I know they they there's so much room for them to work together because well, I mean you can tell this conversation is oh really gosh. representative of that. It's you can't separate it. Um, what I need to figure out is how do I put that together as an offering? How do I communicate in the way where um, people understand. Yeah, um, for sure. And yeah, what does that look like? So that's one. Um, for for 2020, I'm also really excited to continue offering online courses. Um, that's something that I offered. I started offering this year through ceremony. Um, and um, yeah, and it's it's exciting. It's exciting to see what people um, enjoy learning. And what's what I like about how I've set up my online courses is that. If you've missed it, it's okay because if you've you know signed up for that course and let's say we're operating out of a different time zone or something, you get the replay link. But even if you've missed that, I'll still have it available as an on-demand on the website. So if you've missed, you know, a specific course, no big deal. Like it's that information is still there. Um, and so I'm just trying to find ways to utilize, let's say, you know, readily available technology. Um, to allow these really ancient practices um, be accessible. Mm. Um, Yeah, and then, you know, remote shamanic readings. I'm astounded by how... how widely it's it's been received in even just the past six months alone. Mm. Um, Before it was sort of this, like, hush-hush thing. Oh, my gosh, like, I'm I'm seeing this, like, shamanic practitioner. And, Mm -hmm. like, people are whispering about it. But now people are like super open and um, I get referrals all the time and they're like, yep, I saw her for this particular thing and this is how it's been helpful. And um, I think it's also an indication of uh, where the masses um, comfort level is Mm -hmm. in this type of work. Beautiful. So speaking of modern um, technology and communication technology, how can people get in touch with you? Where would you like, where are the channels you'd like to direct them to? Mm, well, um, I am on Instagram. So for ceremony, it's shop, it's at shop ceremony and ceremony is spelled with an I E at the end. Um, and then for open minds, 
it's at Open Minds Performance. Mm. And then for websites, it's shopceremony.com or openmindsperformance.com. Amazing. Mimi, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you bridging the gap. Mm, thank you so much, Joss. This Cheers. has been so fun. Thank you. <laughs>